Well, some number of years ago, a veteran reporter was walking through the streets of a major American city, and it was Christmas time. The temperature outside was brisk, the sounds along the streets were bustling, and as you guessed it, the sights, well, they were all brilliant and bright. After conducting several impromptu interviews, the reporter turned to a young woman who had just happened to reach the busy street corner with shopping bags full and in tow. And he pivoted and asked a question of her, hey, ma'am, what would you say is the true meaning of Christmas? A bit confused and unprepared for the question, she responded, oh, I don't know. Isn't that the day that Jesus died? Some in the crowd chuckled, and a few rolled their eyes. But in reality, there was far more truth to her answer that day than they or she had even realized. You see, in many ways, the ultimate meaning of Christmas darkness, of Christmas gloom, is actually Christmas glory. That is, Christmas, it seems, is only best understood in the light of the Son of God's suffering and of His resurrection. Jesus, it appears, really was born to die. The Bible says, in Him was life, and that life was the light of men, John 1 verse 4. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not comprehended it. Or perhaps another translation, it has not overcome it. And that is so true, and you're going to hear about that this morning. To put another way, as Pastor Tim Keller so poignantly wrote once, Easter means that Christmas worked. I love that. Easter means that Christmas worked. Think about that. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we read these familiar words. Since then, since therefore the children, you and I, share in flesh and blood. We're human beings. He, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Only Easter glory makes sense of the Christmas story. As C.S. Lewis famously put it, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That's the meaning of the manger. Now, I realize that some of you are very likely sitting back this morning saying, okay, Pastor Dan has finally lost it. Doesn't he know that this is the time for Christmas sermons and not Easter sermons? Why is he going on and on about Jesus' death and resurrection when we're supposed to be hearing about the birth of Jesus Christ being oohed and awed by this tiny baby born to Mary and Joseph? Well, friends, whether or not I've lost it is not the question this morning, all things considering. But to me, there is an inseparable link, at least as I understand the minds of the New Testament apostles, there is a vital connection between Christmas glory, what we talk about in the incarnation or Jesus becoming a human being, and Easter hope, which is the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can almost not talk about one without the other. You almost can't approach the birth of Jesus without thinking about the resurrection of Jesus. The real heart and essence of New Testament preaching 
is actually the resurrection, not the manger. The enduring symbols of Christianity are a cross and an empty tomb, not a manger filled with hay. And there's a reason for that. I mean, we love Christmas, but we need Easter glory. We need Easter glory. Take, for example, this incredible Christmas text that I've preached several times, the last being a couple of years ago, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, where we read, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. What is Paul really saying here? He's saying that Jesus came to redeem. He did not come to be inaugurated as king, to be made much of here in his first advent. No, he came to die for us. He came to die. Paul is saying that the reason Christ came at Christmas was to purchase us back, to redeem us, and that from Satan's sinister grip, and that at the cost of his very precious and perfect blood. Jesus' life has resulted in life for us. How? Because he tasted death and defeated death in resurrection victory. Consider what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 11. I love this text. Paul says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Paul then says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Or consider what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, a passage we looked at over the last year. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, Paul says, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save Sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Grace had transformed Paul's entire life. Yeah, the Bible says that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. Luke eleven nineteen. So then the majesty of Christ's life is supremely seen in the meaning, not just of the manger, but the meaning of a cross and the meaning of an empty tomb. The majesty of Christ's life is understood in what his death and resurrection actually accomplishes for any of us who believe in him today. Or another way of putting it for this morning is that Christmas grace brings us invariably to Easter hope and to Easter glory. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 and following says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him, or excuse me, through him and for him. Paul says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, notice, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. No, e no Christmas, no Easter. No humble manger, 
no empty tomb. No silent night, smelly shepherds, or visiting wise men. No suffering, no death, and no resurrection. And then no victory, no kingdom, and no eternal hope for you and for me. I just want to press upon us this morning how significant we need to hold Christmas and Easter together in our minds. You see, if Jesus had not been born, but also lived sinlessly and then died vicariously for us and been risen from the dead victoriously for us, then our hope would be empty. Our faith would be in vain and you and I would still be under the condemnation of God's just wrath against sin. But praise the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15 exists, and it is true. Our faith is not empty. Christ, indeed, has risen from the dead. Either the tomb is empty, or Christianity is. It's one or the other. So what on earth does this dichotomy of Christmas and Easter, hope and glory, which comes to us through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, have to do with 2 Timothy chapter 1? verses 8 and following. Well, I'm glad, again, you asked that question this morning. I think, beloved, these verses in 2 Timothy 1, really we're going to focus on verses 8 through 10 this morning. Here, Paul, I believe, encourages his precious son in the faith, a man by the name of Timothy, even as Paul himself faced the imminent reality of his own impending death in Rome, he encouraged Timothy to embrace grace amid gospel suffering. Embrace grace, even when life is painful and difficult. Anybody relate this morning? Life difficult and painful, overwhelmed with trials? Look at Jesus. He is brilliant in his resurrection glory. Paul wanted Timothy, and by extension, he wants everyone who encounters his inspired word, the Spirit's inspired word through Paul's pen, to know that we ourselves, this is the thesis of this morning's sermon, we ourselves are able to share in death-defeating, eternal life-producing power through God by placing our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has saved us and who has called us to a holy calling by trusting in the one who appeared now 2,000 years ago and will appear, I think, in the not-too-distant future in the clouds in glory and in the one who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Just borrowing right out of Paul's words there in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. In other words, here in these verses, get this this morning, it'll change your life. Paul gives one of the clearest summations of gospel truth found anywhere in his letters. It has been an overwhelmingly joyful week of study this week. Maybe 20 or 30 words in our English Bibles sum up what we mean as Christians by the gospel. Namely, that the testimony of God, the testimony of the gospel, the truth that's going to carry you and I and sustain us through tragedy to triumph, from suffering to glory, from any earthly hurt to all eternal hope, is that the power of God has entered into human history in the form of a baby boy. That baby boy grew up and never once defied his father. 
He always lived sinlessly before the Father. But the world rejected him and crucified him on a Roman cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, but the tomb could not hold him. He rose from the dead in just three days. And now he is the living Lord for all of our stories. This is a truth that will transform your life if you believe it. So please follow along with me as we reread these verses that Travis read for us so beautifully a few moments ago. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. And I'm going to read down to verse 10 here in this reading. Listen to God's word. It's the most important thing you'll hear all morning. Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works done but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages, literally before time eternal. And verse 10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's God's word. Let me try to just sum up succinctly the point that I think Paul is trying to make here in view of Timothy's trials and our own earthly hurt. And then I want to just press home a few points of application this morning with you rather briefly. Here's the point, guys. And again, if you believe it, it should radically transform your life. Because Jesus Christ has come, And we celebrate his coming at Christmas. But more than that, because he has encountered Satan, he has taken the sting of death upon his own body. He has conquered death by rising again from the grave, bringing life immortal, defanging death against those who are found by faith in him. Because of this, if we trust him with our lives, we don't have to be afraid of death. We don't have to be afraid of suffering. We don't have to be afraid of whatever is coming down the pike for us. Because it is the shadow now. Death has hit Jesus. He has absorbed it. He has overcome it. And so now when death creeps near to us... It's just a shadow when it lights upon us. That's the point that Paul is making in 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's a point that all of us need to reckon with. But some of us in this morning, it is an imminent reality that we are clinging to because of suffering and heartache and death today. Thomas Oden, a Methodist pastor and scholar, said, Life looks different when death is encroaching close. Life looks different when one is imminently facing death. You see, we could ask any number of you in this room that have walked with a family member up to death's door. I have sat beside too many bedsides as beloved ones in Christ have gone home to glory. But there's a strange comfort there 
There's a dying grace that I've seen in some of our own members' faces as they've, as they've reckoned with the fact that their very next breath may very well be their final breath here. What can we learn from such people? Well, it's what we learn from Paul. You see, Paul knew quite well that in all likelihood, as he wrote on his parchment to Timothy, that he was writing his very last words on earth to an old friend, a traveling companion in the mission of the church for nearly two decades at this particular point. And so he encourages Timothy to remain steadfast in gospel courage amid his ministerial challenges back over at the church in Ephesus. And to do this through gospel conviction and gospel courage. There was something steadying for Paul. There was something encouraging for him that he wanted Timothy, and by extension all of us this morning, to keep in mind concerning the coming and crucifixion and the powerful resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That light had come. And the darkness could not vanquish it. You ever notice so many Christmas lights this time of year? I love looking at Christmas lights. But do you know what it requires to see the brilliance of the light? It requires darkness. When we drive and we see piercing darkness, but then we see the light of a home beautifully illuminated, there's something warm about that. That's what Paul is trying to get us to realize this morning. The light of the world has come in the face of Jesus. Death has been swallowed up in his glorious resurrection from the grave. Therefore, faith has conquered fear forever. You don't have to be afraid of death. Now, I know no one who's really looking forward to dying, who's looking forward to the pain. But what I'm talking about is you don't have to fear what's beyond that. You don't have to fear eternal death when you look Christ in the face in his resurrection glory. The fact of the matter is Paul himself was on death row when he wrote these words. Second Timothy was his last will and testament. But Paul was in Rome as a prisoner, not of Nero. According to verse 8, he's a, he's a prisoner of Christ. He's a prisoner for the sake of the gospel. He's in Rome once again. He's, the year is very likely 63, late in the fall, 63 AD. And the apostles' trial still awaited him. And yet, unlike previous imprisonments, Paul seemed to have a clear and palpable sense that he was not walking out of this prison standing up. He was going to be carried out. And according to, to tradition, he was beheaded at this time under Nero's command. But Notice what Paul says in the couple chapters later, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. No, he's not at Philadelphia Airport. No, he's talking about the time of his departure up to glory is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but, to all, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul is saying, Timothy, take heart. What I can taste already, you can have by faith. He extends it to us. As Paul was passing from the scene, I want you to notice this morning that Timothy was suddenly struggling, evidently, in fact, 
to stand his own ground. Look at verse uh, 8 of chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says, Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. While Paul was in prison on account of the message of Christ and the gospel, Timothy was still back in Ephesus fighting false teachers, trying to teach sleepy saints the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, we believe that Timothy very likely spent the balance of his days in the city of Ephesus as a pastor and overseer of the church. According to church tradition, Timothy died as a martyr around the year 97 AD. That would have been at least 30, almost 40 years after he received these words from the Apostle Paul. Could it perhaps be that this insight, this encouragement from Paul the pastor to Timothy encouraged him to keep the faith, to keep pressing on in the ministry? Perhaps, indeed, it was. You never know what a little dose of gospel encouragement will do for a brother or sister in Christ. Give them that dose. It might last a decade. Well, in any event, here, as Paul wrote 2 Timothy in the mid-60s AD, again from uh, Rome in prison, Timothy was struggling in the face of fierce opponents. And so Paul wrote these words to encourage his friend in the faith to not be ashamed, either, I think, in attitude or in action, to not be embarrassed by the gospel or to leave Paul alone. In fact, in the last chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul says, do your best. It's 2 Timothy 4 verse 11. Do your best to visit me by winter. It's possible that Timothy was so embarrassed about what was happening with Paul that he started to distance himself from Paul. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, but rather join me in suffering for the sake of Jesus. Now, why would Timothy, why would Timothy have been tempted to be ashamed of Jesus, his gospel, or Paul, his herald? You ever wondered that? Why would Timothy have been tempted to be ashamed? It's a good question. And I think it actually cuts right to the heart of what Paul is saying. I want to take a moment and digress to another passage. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and following to help us understand what the big embarrassment was at this time. You know this passage. Paul says to the Corinthians, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the same construction in 2 Timothy 1 as 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It's the power of God. Paul says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe, Paul says? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, notice, crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God... 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We don't often consciously get this. But the big embarrassment of the gospel to the Greek was the concept of resurrection. The big embarrassment to the gospel for the Jew was a crucified Messiah. That's important to keep in mind. And I think it has a lot to do with Timothy's trials over there in Ephesus. The gospel is utter foolishness to the entire world, but in Paul's day, the gospel was differently offensive. To the Greek, they did not want any part of a resurrection, a bodily resurrection. To the Jew, they didn't want any part of a crucified Messiah. This calls to mind just briefly another famous passage of Paul in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is a a passage most of us have committed to heart. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it that is the gospel, not Paul's eloquence, not Paul's preaching, but the gospel message itself is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If you want to know God, you have to come to grips with this gospel of a crucified and risen Messiah, be you Jew or Gentile. To the Greeks and thus to many of Timothy's audience that he faced back in Ephesus, the very epicenter of Greek philosophy, mind you, the notion of an actual resurrection would have been even more shameful than the preaching of the cross. As one writer put it so well, to the Greek way of thinking, influenced by Plato, all tangible matter was utterly detestable. The realm of substance that we inhabit on earth is but a substandard shadow of the perfect realm of the pure thought or idea. Humans then were divine sparks, according to the Greeks, trapped within prisons of fleshly matter. And death is a liberation from the body. Freed from its captivity to the realm of substance, the mind then can fly to its true home, the realm of idea. Therefore, to the Greek mind, resurrection, literally the reunion of mind with body, was totally absurd and utterly revolting. That's what Timothy had to confront, and that was the potential embarrassment that he faced. It was, to Greeks, a reincarceration. They were wanting to get rid of this body in the first place. This bit of historical insight accounts, I think, for not only Timothy's present anxiety and as the context behind 2 Timothy chapter 1, but also for much of Paul's past troubles as he went about preaching Christ and the resurrection. You guys remember the scene, famous scene over in Acts chapter 17, where Paul is preaching in Athens. Let me just cite a couple of words from Acts 17 verse 18. Paul is preaching and we are told that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Again, they're in Athens and some of them said, what does this babbler wish to say? Notice why they say this. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Again, we've tried, and I think um, helpfully so in recent years, to recover preaching the resurrection, not just preaching the cross. We need to preach both, but don't just leave Jesus bloodied and buried. 
as the African-American church often says, preacher, get him out of the tomb. <laughs> if, you, if you slow up and you don't get to Easter Sunday, get him out of the grave. Preacher, get him out of the tomb. And that's what Paul and the apostles were keen to do. So listen, I, I think rather than being embarrassed by the testimony of the, of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul wanted Timothy to embrace the scandal of the cross for his Jewish audience and the shock of an empty grave for the Greek audience, thereby joining him in suffering for the gospel according to the mighty power of God. And that's the big implication that I want to share with you this morning before I press home just a few points of application. Genuine belief in the gospel of Jesus, friends, is actually nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing to be ashamed of, but rather, as Paul says here in 2 Timothy 1, it emboldens us, it enables us to experience the power of God, not just later, but now. The power of God now resulting in the forgiveness of sin and the fruitfulness of a life lived in service to Jesus Christ. But my question is this, are we living in the light of his power? See, we, we love these stories. We believe it between our ears, but sometimes we stop short of it transforming our lives entirely. Just give you a couple of thoughts. Are you ever ashamed of your belief in a resurrected Christ. And you're like, of course, Pastor Dan, I'm not ashamed of that. When was the last time you told somebody that you believe and you follow a resurrected king? You see, if we're not ashamed of something, we're going to share about it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to, we're going to invite somebody to come follow this resurrected king with us. God is doing such a work among us, guys. I'm so encouraged by you these days. But that tub behind me ought not to get dry. Because we are constantly preaching Christ crucified and risen from the dead. But I'm with you. I'm not preaching at you. I get beaten up by the Spirit all week long and you guys get it for 35 minutes on a Sunday. Listen, there are many windows and opportunities where I don't speak for Jesus. But if we believe that he abolished death and brought immortal life, why are we not telling people about this? That's one of the applications for us. Jesus said it this way. If you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. But if you acknowledge me before men, you're my brother. You're my sister. Second application question for us this morning. Do you consciously and consistently draw from the life of Jesus Christ? If we died with him, we will be raised with him. So not only are we telling others about it, but are we living differently in light of it? That's the other application question for us. See, belief in the gospel of Jesus enables us to share in the power of his sufferings in order that we might experience the power of his life. Two famous Pauline passages have been rattling around in my heart all week. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. 
says, yet what we know, yet we know, Paul says, is that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. For if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Obedience, service. You realize that your ministry as a Sunday school teacher, your ministry at Grief Share, your ministry in Sunday school, whatever it is, it's actually the power of Christ in you. It's Jesus living his life through you. Our part is to yield to his power, to yield to his presence. But when we claim to be in Christ, but we do not live a transformed life, we are denying his power. We are denying his power, and we must confess and repent of that. In order to draw upon the life and power of Christ, we must die to our own self-righteous works. That's why Paul here in this passage is talking about the gospel in terms of we did not justify ourselves, but grace appeared before the ages. It appeared according to his own purpose and his grace. We must die to our own self-righteous works and join Christ by faith in his resurrection. The other passage that I've really been so reminded of this week is Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and following, a famous passage, but so rich and so good. Paul says in Philippians 3, 7, but whatever gain I had, and Paul had quite the impressive resume, you know, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Notice what he says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his birth. No, the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Belief in the gospel means we're going to tell people we're going to live radically different, and we're going to realize we've been forgiven of our sins, that we might experience the power of his resurrection. But finally, the implication is, what are we counting on when death creeps near to us? What are you counting on to get you through your darkest, hardest days? And what should be our soul-sustaining belief as Christians in light of the suffering of Jesus? It is the fact that he has defeated and abolished death. There's an incredible scene in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where Christian and his companion, Hope, come to the final river called death. And there they are fearful at the water. They're fearful that it would be over their heads, but hope goes first. And then he calls back to Christians saying, be of good cheer. 
Brother, I feel the bottom, and it is good. I feel the bottom, and it is good. For every Christian, the bottom is good because the word of Christ is firm. It's true. You can face whatever suffering. You can face the prospect of your imminent death because Christ and his promise is sure. The death and resurrection of Christ means that we don't have to fear our death and we don't have to be embarrassed about our coming life either. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as many of you know, was a German pastor who fearlessly opposed Adolf Hitler and helped stave off the Holocaust in some ways. He was arrested on April the 5th, 1943, and yet even in prison, Undoubtedly, like the Apostle Paul, which is why his story came to my mind, Bonhoeffer's passion for the gospel could not be repressed as a minister as he cared for the sick and even shared the hope of eternal life with his own captors. Evidently, just 24 hours before he was scheduled to be executed, Dietrich Bonhoeffer gathered some fellow prisoners and held a worship service. And he chose for that particular service two passages, Isaiah 53 the famous passage of Jesus being the suffering servant of God in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. As the service came to a close, two German soldiers famously came into the room and said simply, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, get ready to come with us. After saying a few farewells to his friends, he turned to a fellow inmate, a British officer that we still know his name, Payne Best, and he whispered to his friend, This is the end. But for me, this is the beginning of life. The next day in the forest of Flossenburg, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged. And he saw Jesus. See, for the Christian, because Jesus faced death and the grave, it might be the end soon. But for us, it's just the beginning. We can rejoice and we can have eternal hope in that truth. Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate, he was born not to a king, but to a carpenter. He was born not in robes, but clothed in rags. He was born not into gold, but laid in hay. He was born not in renown, but in relative obscurity. He was born not in splendor, but in a trough. He was born not to live, but as I've been trying to communicate this morning, he was born to die. Oh, come, let us adore our crucified and risen King Jesus. Would you bow with me as we pray? Almighty God and Father, we praise you for your holy word and for your risen and reigning King and Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and King. Father, thank you for this, what I trust is a challenging but encouraging message of gospel hope. That yes, we do live in a world full of darkness, but by faith we know the light of the world. We have the light of life within us. Oh Lord, I pray that this message would encourage many of us today as we are surrounded by literal death. Lord, remind us that you are greater than even our greatest fears. You have conquered sin and death. May our gaze be ever upon the glory of Jesus, who has risen from the dead, and he is returning for us. We pray in his name. Amen.